Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, my name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Victoria Lee about her book, The Arts of the Microbial World, Fermentation Science in 20th Century Japan. The book, which is out from the University of Chicago Press in 2021, is an in-depth exploration of the social history of microbial science in modern Japan. Lee shows that Japanese scientists and artisans in food, chemical, and pharmaceutical industries harnessed a combination of pre-modern and modern understandings of the microbial world to create uh, a productive approach which posited microbes as living workers in important industries. With case studies that include sake and soy sauce, antibiotics, and biotechnology, Arts of the Microbial World weaves a historical narrative integrated with both the development of modern Japanese science and industry on the one hand, and imperialism, expansion, and defeat and rebuilding on the other. Additionally, Lee couches her analysis of Japan's microbial industries in the context of our contemporary microbiotic moment of antibiotic resistance, the microbiome, green chemistry, and lab-grown foods and pharmaceuticals. In this sense, Arts of the Microbial World will be of interest to scholars and students of Japan, the history of science, food, pharmaceuticals, and industry, but also to readers concerned about the possibilities of mobilizing non-Western technological breakthroughs in the quest for global sustainability. Okay, Dr. Lee, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, So we're going to be talking today about your book, The Arts of the Microbial World, Fermentation Science in 20th Century Japan. Um, And you've defined this as an exploration of how and why, as you put it, quote, a vision of life as fermentation has been critical to the development of food, of pharmaceuticals, and more in modern Japan. Um, You characterize this vision as a kind of complementary science with strong institutional and ideational continuities over time, from the Meiji period through to the present day. Uh, so I'd like to maybe start off by unpacking what it what it is that you really mean by this vision of life as fermentation, uh, and then go on to think a little bit about uh, defining complementary science, explaining why it's important to your story. But before we get to that, maybe you could tell us how it is that you got uh, interested in this project uh, about fermentation um, and uh, in in modern Japan. Thanks so much for inviting me onto this podcast. I come from a background in science. Um, I did science for my undergraduate degree, actually physics. Um, And so I was familiar with these scientific institutions. And when I came into history of science and started looking at uh, science outside of the, the Western world, which is something I was interested in doing when I went into history of science, I noticed that in Japan, you have scientific institutions that look pretty similar to what you have in Europe and North America, the institutions that I've been to, you know, you have similar scientific disciplines, you have similar scientific institutions. Um, And so it looked like you have um, this structure of modern science that that is seemingly universal. um, But at the same time, I was interested in the fact that when you look a little bit closer at how these institutions work um, and and also how these categories work in Japan, they seem to function a bit differently. So, for example, this um, this discipline of microbiology, this concept of a microbe, 
um, it there seemed to be a different emphasis on what that meant um, in Japan. So you did have medical bacteriology um, and, and this emphasis on hygiene and fighting infectious disease like like it developed in um, in in Europe um, or North America, but there was also um, a way of thinking about microbes that seemed to be distinctive. For example, you have this discipline of agricultural chemistry, which looks very different from what from the discipline that's called agricultural chemistry in Europe or the United States. Um, you have people working with microbes and describing their work um, in ways that are also um, quite different from the rhetoric that you're used to in Europe or North America. So for example, um, the Nobel Prize winner, um, Omura Satoshi, um, who um, won the Nobel in medicine in 2015 for um, his work on ivermectin, which is an anti-parasitic drug, um, he said when he accepted the award, um, he, he told the press, I merely borrowed the power of microbes. So this, this rhetoric of asking microbes to do things for us, of um, borrowing their power, it, it, it seemed to be a different way of, of engaging with microbes. So I got interested in that um, this dual nature of um, of of the character of, of science um, in places like Japan, where you have these similarities and in institutions, but but then they they actually work quite differently, and it seemed like um, it it um, revealed a kind of um, difference in, in the way things are done um, in, in different places um, in, in, in modern science. Um, and that, you know, perhaps you don't have this one path of modernity, perhaps there are lots of different ways of, of doing things. Um, and I was interested in, in the idea that there might be a continuity with uh, the pre-modern era, um, that that might continue to matter even in the 20th century, um, even in the present day. So I, I started looking into fermentation science to to understand those questions more. Yeah, that's great. And I think that the, the example you just gave, the ivermectin example, is a really interesting one, that idea of borrowing the power of something that's already there. And I think this does connect to uh, to both the ideas of uh, life as fermentation um, and to some extent complementary science uh, that you start to lay out in the introduction. Um, can, can we talk a little bit more about those before diving into the chapters? Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, just to um, explain a little bit more, there's this idea of sharp discontinuity with the advent of modern science, that there's a great divide. And the microbe is often used as an example, as an example for that. It's a new concept in the late 19th century, you know, the discoveries of Louis Pasteur, that you have a living organism that causes disease and, and fermentation of wine and beer and so on. And also the, the rise of the laboratory as a new thing in the late 19th century. People like Bruno Latour, they've argued this is actually a mark of modernity, the ability to take what's invisible and make it visible and, and master that in the laboratory. When people have followed this modern revolution into the 20th century, looking at human engagement with microbes, their accounts have mostly focused on infectious disease, including in Asia and Japan. There's a literature about bacteriology as a tool of empire, for enforcing hygienic modernity, colonizing the body, eradicating enemies. By using the phrase, a vision of life as fermentation, I'm referring to another way that existed other than medical bacteriology by which the state organized ideas about political economy and 
everyday life through a different approach to microbial control. It's still a kind of control, but here, along with being pathogens, microbes are also productive. You know, societies use them for brewing. Both of those traditions, the pathogenic tradition and the productive tradition, were really strong in Japan, but the productive tradition is much lesser known. By picking up that thread, I wanted to, as I've said earlier, explore the idea of modern science as being universal and to break it down to provincialize Europe, so to speak. And that's why I take a European concept that was imported to Japan in the late 19th century and follow how it functioned subsequently in, in the 20th century. Um, so institutionally, it's not um, just in the medical faculties of universities that microbiology develops in Japan. It's also in the agricultural faculties of universities, sometimes also in the engineering faculties but especially in the discipline of agricultural chemistry, noge kagaku, which means chemistry for the agricultural arts. In Europe, this is a heavily chemical discipline. In Japan, it's a heavily microbiological discipline. By the end of the 20th century, it's a massive discipline that drew together pure and applied research in all kinds of areas, brewing, pharmaceuticals, microbial classification, microbial genetics, all kinds of related fields. Even though today, those departments have all changed their names to names related to biotechnology. Intellectually as well, fermentation scientists thought about microbes and handled microbes as living workers as much as pathogens. And it's not to say that Japan is entirely unique, that the production of um, the productive tradition of microbiology uh, didn't exist in Europe or North America, because it did. I think of the work of uh, Robert Budd on the uses of life or Nicole Welk-Jorger on cattle rumen, for example. But Japanese fermentation science is a standout historical example because of the scale of state support that it received. The book focuses on what I call this vision of life as fermentation in several industries, including traditional brewing, such as sake, soy sauce, and miso, food and nutrition, the fine chemical and pharmaceutical industries, including products like vitamins, MSG, penicillin, and antibiotics from 1900 all the way to 1980 to show that not only did the intellectual and institutional connections function distinctively, but they were shaped strongly by continuities with the early modern period. I'm trying to argue that cultural difference continued to matter in 20th century science, even in categories and disciplines that were entirely imported. And I'm pushing it back against the idea that there was a great divide, a sharp great divide, and one single path of modernity. Moving on to complementary science, this is a program that's articulated by the philosopher of science, Hassel Chang. It aims to recover knowledge that was lost when societies made certain scientific choices in the past. Generally, it's a program of counterfactual history. It asks, what if? What if our world were filled with deflagiscated air instead of oxygen? Could we use that lost knowledge to inspire or inform approaches today? 
I take the concept of complementary science to highlight that fermentation science similarly represents another way of experimental biology, though this one actually happened in the 20th century. And I use it to highlight that this other path could also be brought to bear on present day problems that we face today, particularly in the area of sustainability. With the discovery of the microbiome, the fact that we coexist and depend on microbes at every level of life, of the contribution of microbes to the earth system, they make half the earth's oxygen, they also make greenhouse gases, in agriculture, in the soil, and in the stomachs of livestock, for example, we now realize that we need to work with microbes for sustainability, possibly to use them to make dairy without cows, to make protein without animals, or that we need to preserve, for example, soil microbes to maintain crop health and plant health. There have been calls in this vein to find new ways to approach microbes that value traditional and small-scale production, that promotes biodiversity, um, that incorporates ecosystem thinking. And with 20th century Japanese fermentation science, we get a detailed example of an approach that was historically realized and that did all of these things. Yeah, and so that's uh, a really great way of laying out uh, a lot of the uh, concepts, ideas, uh, themes that you then pursue in the individual chapters, um, especially uh, in chapter one, you're really talking a lot about this, what I think you just called the productive approach and the idea of uh, microbes as living workers. Uh, and so I want to talk about, uh, I want to get into that first chapter, which is about sake and shoyu, about uh, sake and soy sauce. Um, so by the time we get to the end of this chapter, right, we've already sort of reached this point where Japanese science and industry are um, engaging in, as you put it, a particular way of seeing microbes, not only as pathogens, but as living workers. Uh, and this, as you've already explained, is an idea at the heart of the book. Um, can you tell us, as you do to, to, to some extent here in, in chapter one, you know, how, how we get to that point at this transitional phase um, in, in Japanese history. It seems to me that you're arguing um, that the importation and adaptation of the sort of Western scientific modalities and techniques uh, which start in the 19th century is critical, but that at the same time, the peculiar status of scientist as, as you put it, a manager of material production for capital accumulation now on a national level was equally important to understanding how things shook out specifically in Japan. Yes, absolutely. This chapter is about um, the importation of the scientific techniques, but also the importation of the category of the scientist. And I'm looking at two trends there. One is of convergence and one is of divergence. So the first trend of convergence um, is is um, in the Meiji period um, is a convergence between imported European techniques and Japanese proto-capitalist developments coming out of the Tokugawa period. The trend of divergence of Japanese microbiology is one of um, of how um, of how um, the developments uh, veer away from what they were in Europe. Um, for reasons that also go back to early modern developments in Japan. To start with the convergence, 
The context for adaptation of Western microbiology and the institutional of scientific institutionalization of scientific disciplines like fermentation science was the birth of new institutions in agriculture and engineering in the late Meiji period toward the turn of the 20th century at a time when improving small and medium scale industries was a major goal of the state. The state had the goal of promoting industrialization to combat European and American imperialism under the unequal treaties at this time. The state pursued two paths to do that. One path was to import the Western factory system and heavy industry. The second path, which was pursued at the same time, um, this is a dual strategy, especially after the 1880s, was to improve so-called indigenous industries. These were industries that were already in existence and had come out of rural proto-industrialization. So farmers making things as side industries alongside agriculture, like pottery, dyes, silk. By far the largest of these was sake brewing. These were all industries that had uh, flourished in the Tokugawa period and continued to flourish in the early Meiji period and beyond that. Sake brewing had the largest production values among all the manufacturing sectors in 1900, whether they were imported or indigenous. And it's, it's a very layered industry. You have large producers, you have small producers. Um, exporting goods to, um, whether it's locally and regionally or nationally, internationally. This push to aid indigenous industries was supported by the development of an information infrastructure between government, academia, and industry that was built to transfer knowledge to small and medium-sized producers. The larger producers didn't really need that help as much, so the information network was there to aid small and medium-sized producers. That information network included universities, technical schools that would train technicians from, from the brewing industry in scientific techniques and scientific ideas, government brewing experiment stations at the national and prefectural levels, since um, these industries weren't able to, um, they weren't large enough to take on some of the research themselves. So the these experiment stations would do it on their behalf. Also industrial associations to share these developments and ideas um, between different firms. When I talk about the scientist as a manager of, of material production on a national level for capital accumulation, what I'm referring to is that these state-supported scientific disciplines and scientific information networks co-opted the energy of local rural movements and of entrepreneurs who had already been advocating for scientific improvement of brewing and the improvement of tra uh, traditional industries in general, but especially sake brewing. This is the convergence that I'm referring to between earlier com commercial developments from the Tokugawa era and what new scientific tools from Europe allowed industrialists and technicians to do. There was also a divergence in how microbes became living workers in Japan as prominently as they became pathogens, which differed from European trends. The reason is the same, that continuity with the craft knowledge of small-scale brewers. 
Before the concept of microbiology was introduced in Japan, there were already small-scale, highly specialized, skilled firms in the brewing sector in Japan who were dedicated to selecting, preserving, and selling microbial spores, namely of koji, the rice mold that is used to brew sake, soy sauce, and miso. These brewers shared concerns with academic scientists for identifying and controlling microbes. A lot of exchange took place between the brewers and the scientists in their techniques, in the knowledge, and also in the microbes themselves. Scientists incorporated the brewers' knowledge into their discipline because of this. Yeah, and um, they do this uh, in, of course, uh, as you put it, the, you know, the the sake and soy sauce industries. Uh, and also, as you show uh, in chapter two, uh, sort of more largely in the field of food production, chapter two is about nutrition. Um, and in this chapter, you're arguing that um, in the early decades of the 20th century, uh, especially the interwar years and in the run-up uh, to the Pacific War uh, and World War II, fermentation scientists in Japan were instrumental in, um, as you put it, creating a knowledge of microbes as methods of national resource management. And I thought this was a really interesting idea of microbes, um, you know, connecting them to national resources. Um, so in this chapter, you're spotlighting the work of a number of individuals, uh, Tsuboi Sentaro, Suzuki Umetaro, et cetera, uh, and showing how each of them intervened in the sort of material culture of food and nutrition. But ultimately, um, you know, more than more than any specific individual, I think what you're looking at is the development of what you're calling the scarcity technologies uh, that, that become particularly important in wartime. Um, so how does that all fit together and sort of what's transformative about the interventions of these individuals uh, who are working in the field uh, of nutrition um, and microbes uh, as methods of national resource management? I'm emphasizing the fact that they were scarcity of technologies and methods of national resource management because here I'm looking at food processing technologies that historians of other national contexts have been used to looking at in market terms. For example, synthetic foods. In this case, I'm looking at synthetic sake and chemical soy sauce, uh, vitamins, yeast tablets, MSG, and others. Um, and instead of thinking about them in market terms, I'm reading them for what they tell us about their designers' ideas about political economy and the environment. What's important to understand is that these were middle-level developments. They were not entirely bottom-up and market-driven. They were not entirely top-down or state-imposed either. The designers, on the whole, were statist elites working across government and private institutions. There wasn't a strict division between government ministries, the business sphere, and academic science. This was also true for other industries that I examine in the book, and it's true for nutrition as well. Scientists often worked in all three spheres and moved between them throughout their careers, both in the pre-war and post-war periods. These scientists' aims changed after the Meiji period. Fermentation scientists' aims changed after the Meiji period from supporting industrialization to combating what was perceived to be resource scarcity in the interwar period, especially by supporting imperial expansion. It was a time of economic instability, of rice riots, of Malthusian anxieties in Japan. These 
scientists were encouraging ideals of what they thought modern middle-class life should look like in a way that they believed could help Japan contest Western empires in Asia. Broadly, we see two approaches develop out of attempts at resource rationalization. One of these is the synthetic chemical view that's represented by Suzuki Umetaro's synthetic sake. It was developed at RIKEN, the Institute of Physical and Chemical Research, in a lab that was much better known for vitamin science because Suzuki Umetaro is famous as one of the discoverers of vitamins, but the lab he founded at RIKEN was just as invested in synthetic sake. Synthetic sake was a technocratic Taylorite attempt at efficiency by conserving agricultural material, especially rice. It was imperialist in that it treated fossil fuel resources from Manchuria as being unlimited. Suzuki said that he hoped that eventually we can make every food and drink out of coal, earth, air, and water, as he put it. The second approach is one of ecosystem thinking. This is exemplified by the work of Takara Ryohei, who worked at the National Institute of Nutrition Research. He was a bit younger than Suzuki by about 20 years. His career came of age in wartime during the 1930s and 40s. Takata, for resource rationalization, turned back to agricultural resources and published tables calculating the national annual total vitamin production by summing up vitamins from each crop and showing that vitamins were sufficient for the population as long as their flow across different industrial sectors was managed appropriately. This was a conception of an ecology of vitamins where, for example, you can use microbes grown on industrial waste and have people eat the microbes to alter the flow of nutrients. How uh, this transformed science um, in Japan in the long term, synthetic sake and soy sauce were actually technologies that were widely used after World War II. They created methods of flavor adjustment that are still used in the industry today. Ecosystem thinking with the nation as the unit also later informed the design of other fermentative technologies like MSG and other amino acids and flavor bearing nucleotides in the post-war period. So even though we don't see ourselves as regularly eating microbes that are grown on industrial affluent, the ways of thinking about nutrition as part of an ecosystem um, at, at the national level in Japan was something that um, impacted science and, and shaped it very deeply um, in the decades to come. Yeah, so you've done a great job of connecting this to the the themes of the next two chapters together. So chapter three, nation, and chapter four, empire, um, because these chapters uh, together are examining the creation of a sort of Japanese national fermentation tradition in the context of both formal and informal empire. Um, and you're really uh, digging into the uh, questions about expansion and uh, resources, uh, resource, you know, uh, access to resources um, that you've begun to talk about already. So I'd like to take a look first at chapter three. Um, in chapter three, you, you, you begin with a look 
1945 book on fermentation by uh, Yamazaki Momoji, uh, who is one of Japan's microbial strain collectors, which is sounds like a very cool job description. Um, so you, you use this book as a, an example of, uh, to begin discussing a problem at the heart of Japanese national identity uh, within the context of empire. Um, and that is, as you, uh, as you put it, uh, how could scientific and technical knowledge's traditional nature, as well as its debt to Asia, be reconciled with the imperialist ideology of scientific modernization? So this is the question you're asking and, and your answer, which I thought was really interesting and quite provocative is, quote, the most striking feature of Yamazaki Momoji's 1945 text is schizophrenia. So unpack that for us. Uh, what do you mean about schizophrenia here? Uh, what is the content, the, the, the nature of the character of that schizophrenia? And how does it then relate to the idea of East Asia as um, a resource in and of itself, right? For raw materials and for scientific knowledge uh, for Japan. This this chapter, along with the, the next chapter, chapters three and four, address the fact that Japanese fermentation science has a strongly regional dimension. Other societies in East and Southeast Asia also use mold fermentation technologies historically. So how did that affect the development of this field in modern Japan? The very existence of fermentation science as a field challenges the assumption that science is Western, universalist, and modern. The field also speaks to Japan's national identity. Koji is today the national fungus of Japan. In the imperial period, this presented a contradiction. On the one hand, there were claims that science was part of Japan's civilizing mission in the empire, the two wartime notions of kagaku gijutsu, or scientific technology, and toa, or East Asia, were linked, as other scholars have shown. The idea that was that Japan would lead in developing the science and technology, and the rest of East Asia would provide the raw material. The region of East Asia would then be able to compete with the West. So that's the claim. But in fermentation, was Japan really so ahead compared to China and Korea that Japan was uniquely suited to lead them? Yamazaki Momoji is a figure that opens up these questions. He lived for over a decade in Shanghai based at the Toa Dolmen Shoin. He became known as an expert on Chinese brewing molds. He collected strains that can still be found in Japanese research labs today, such as at Tokyo University. He published a massive work of ethnochemistry of East Asian fermentation just before the end of the war and the collapse of the Japanese empire. It gives us the only articulation of how Japanese scientists saw national fermentation history at a time when they were so deeply engaged in work in other parts of Asia. This book that Yamazaki wrote and Yamazaki himself have two faces. On one face, he says, Japanese fermentation developed absolutely independently and reflects the mutational superiority of the Japanese race. On the other face, the largest section in the book is about China and based on his reading of Chinese historical documents. If Japanese fermentation was so unique then, why can it only be articulated in a work that focuses on China, written by someone who has devoted his life to studying Chinese brewing cultures? There's a yearning toward cosmopolitanism that drives 
Yamazaki's work on the book. But the ultimate articulation is parochial in line with wartime ideology. Conceptually, that makes the work incoherent, which as other scholars have argued, is a telling feature of colonial discourse and ambivalence. I look at debates on the origin of Koji in this chapter through the 20th century to show where Yamazaki's work fits in. He does a lot of intellectual gymnastics to try to argue that China and Japan are equal, but it's clear that he believes China's tradition to be greater and more expansive than Japan's. Yeah, and I think this is a, a very um, edifying incoherence, if you will, this sort of schizophrenia that you point out, right? Because it does really say, you know, a great deal about the uh, the context uh, of uh, in which he's he's producing this knowledge, um, and it's a, a story that you take up uh, in chapter four as well, so the second half of that story, uh, where you're looking. Uh, not this time so much as schizophrenia, but amnesia, separate, uh, separating empire from the post-war. Um, as you put it, uh, as, you, as you note, um, historiographies of modern Japanese scientific development uh, have acknowledged and highlighted indebtedness to Western technology and traditions, but not to this adaptation of regional Asian knowledge that you've just pointed out in uh, chapter three, especially. So in chapter four, you're moving us out to the colonial frontiers to explore alcohol production um, and specifically how techniques from the edge of empire informed the industries of the metropole. Uh, ultimately, you write by the 1940s, uh, Japan's fermenters had uh, three techniques in their arsenal. Uh, the malt method dominant in Europe and the US, the indigenous koji method used in sake and miso soy sauce, um, and the amelo method, a Chinese-based technique developed by French scientists in Saigon and Japanese scientists in Taiwan. Uh, so I, I, maybe it's already sort of clear to our listeners, uh, you know, what, what how this fits into your larger story. But tell us why this is important to the empire um, and to the development of science and technology then in post-war Japan across uh, that divide. Mm -hmm. Techniques of alcohol production were important to imperial expansion because the alcohol industry was driven by the military. Alcohol is a material that's needed for making munitions, for example. And during World War II, the entire alcohol sector was converted to biofuel production in response to the oil embargo. There was concurrently a massive expansion in fermentation science as a discipline in wartime. We can trace the workings of the military academic industrial complex by following the industrialization of alcohol production. But my aim is actually to bring the story a little bit beyond that to show as well how Asian knowledge contributed to Japanese modernity. And this brings me to the, the second part of the question, why was this important to post-war Japanese biotechnology? It's because colonial frontiers were the source of biodiversity in Japan's national microbial culture collections. It's the reason why most of the research took place in colonies such as Taiwan and why heritage brewing cultures at the margins of Japan's empire like Okinawan awamori or Taiwanese rice liquor wound up forming the basis of resources for a dynamic post-war biotechnology in Japan, um, not just being the technologies that became um, the foundations for the highest yielding methods of alcohol production.
The conventional narrative of modernity in microbiology is one of standardization. Um, but here instead, there's a valuing of biodiversity, the unknown potential of what exotic microbes can do, which is a source of entrepreneurial creativity for the fermentation industries in general. It's a source of capital for them. Yeah, and so the uh, chapter five continues on with thinking about post-war developments with microbial technology. But here you're taking a, a turn from, you know, sort of, focus earlier on in the book uh, a little bit more on the food industry uh, and you're looking at uh, pharmaceuticals here specifically antibiotics uh, at the post-war development of the penicillin industry specifically uh, so as we've already talked about you know wartime science is defined in part by resource scarcity uh, and in and the sort of resulting uh, quest for you know, new resources um, and fermentation science is transformative, right, in this context, uh, as, as you show in the previous two chapters, this transfer and adaptation of technologies is a crucial part of the story of alcohol production. Um, so it seems to me that, you know, uh, of these per these perspectives, um, they remain highly relevant here as you're looking at the domestication of penicillin in the post-war. Uh, at the center of the story that you're telling here is the idea of of domestication um, and the Japan Penicillin Research Association and its view of quote microbes as alchemists of the environment. Yeah, that's right. Antibiotics and penicillin are an interesting field for looking at this because this is a field where Japanese scientists have been especially productive and creative in the second half of the 20th century. Antibiotics are made by microbes. Penicillin also is made by a mold. Um, and there are other drugs like statins, like ivermectin, which are also made by microbes, where Japanese scientists have made really fundamental contributions in the later half of the 20th century. But the reason why this is interesting is because it's an imported field as well with technology that was transferred to Japan from the United States during the occupation period. Because of this, it's often seen as a clear-cut case of technology transfer, like semiconductors or automobiles. But I use the concept of domestication or koksanka, which is national production using local raw materials, to show that indigenous knowledge was central to why Japan became so successful in this field during the period of high growth. My aim there is to highlight transwar continuity, like other scholars have done for things like industrial policy, both in the institutions and also in the knowledge carried by continuities in personnel. You have the leading fermentation scientists that were involved in research on alcohol and other fermentation fields that also become involved in the domestication of penicillin. And I argue that you can see deep continuities with pre-war Japanese fermentation science in at least three ways. One, in approaches to screening, that is how, to, how do you find a microbe that can make a drug of interest. Uh, another is the information infrastructure that connected leading scientists to private manufacturers and let scientists act as mediators of government policies. And third, in how scientists had this deep understanding of local resource constraints, um, as you mentioned, and what microbes could do to offset those constraints, which really laid the foundations for post-war Japanese antibiotic science. 
Yeah, um, the, the final chapter is uh, another place where uh, I think that uh, Japanese uh, fermentation science has done some very interesting things in the post-war. And this is the chapter's title is Flavor. Um, and you make two really sort of thought-provoking propositions about the nature of fermentation science in the post-war decades in, in the context of this, uh, this theme of flavor. So first you say that the, the unifying force in the field was the concept of metabolic engineering. Um, and second, you write that the contributions of fermentation science are shaped by a particular institutional context in which scientists were often engaged in both pure and applied science simultaneously, uh, sometimes in corporate laboratories, right, was where the applied science is happening. And I think that's somewhat of a, a carryover, a continuity with uh, the, the situation that you described as far back as Meiji. Um, the, of course, these two things, the idea of metabolic engineering and the sort of combination of pure and applied science are inextricable uh, in explaining the picture of uh, fermentation science in the post-war decades. So can you tell us first what metabolic engineering is um, and why it's important to that story of fermentation science in the 50s to 70s? Um, and then lay out the picture of uh, fermentation science overall during these decades that you're dealing with in this chapter. Uh-huh. Metabolic engineering describes a prominent line of research in Japan from the 1950s to the 1970s, which involved altering the biochemical functions of microbes to produce chemicals of desire. So scientists in Japanese corporate um, laboratories, like in, in big industrial players in the food and pharmaceutical industries, like Ajinomoto, Takeda Yakin, Yam, uh, Yamasa Shoyu, Kyohako, they started to ferment MSG, which is a flavor product based on glutamic acid, which is an amino acid. It's one of the building blocks of proteins. They also started to ferment new flavors, including IMP and GMP, which are nucleotides. These are the building blocks of nucleic acids like DNA and RNA. This is the kind of stuff that they were using metabolic engineering to do. MSG um, and IMP, GMP, they all make slightly different umami flavors from each other. Uma uh, MSG makes the umami flavor of seaweed whereas IMP makes the umami flavor of katsuobushi, fish flakes, and GMP makes the umami flavor of shiitake, mushrooms. So they all make different deliciousness flavors. Elsewhere, at the very same time, in Europe and North America, you have the same materials, amino acids and nucleotides, being explored in molecular biology for a very different reason, for understanding how organisms reproduce through DNA and how DNA is translated into amino acids and proteins. So they're pursuing these materials to understand the secret of life. Um, Watson and Crick, their um, structure of, of the double helical, their um, structural determination of DNA um, as a double, double helical structure, um, their model of DNA, you know, based on uh, structural determination by, by um, Rosalind Franklin, um, that gets published around this time in 1953. But in Japan, um, at the beginning of, of that period, I mean, but in Japan, instead of investigating these materials, amino acids and nucleotides as answers to the secret of life, fermentation scientists were studying them for under to understand how they tasted and to understand how, how you make these materials industrially. 
why were they so interested in, in how microbes tasted? That's related to the integration of pure and applied science in post-war Japan. It's a little bit different from how pure and applied uh, research were done in pre-war uh, fermentation science, because in the high growth era, it's corporate laboratories that take the lead in scientific research and fermentation, whereas um, government institutions and university laboratories, they took a step back and took more of a role in doctoral training and information exchange. That led to an emphasis in the corporate laboratories on forms of craft knowledge or procedural knowledge, knowledge about how versus knowledge about that. Scientists were more interested in, in making the microbe do something to produce what they wanted microbes to produce than in figuring out what exactly was the genetic basis of what the microbe was. Corporate labs, they did support pure science. Scientists working in corporate labs published academic papers. They went to international conferences with molecular biologists from Europe and the United States. So their work on metabolic engineering is quite related. Sometimes they moved back into universities after a career at a corporate laboratory. But on the applied side, in their work, there remained strong continuities with the craft knowledge of brewers that the discipline of fermentation science had absorbed at the beginning of the 20th century. And you see those continuities right to the end of the 20th century in the way that scientists are approaching biotechnological problems. For example, how they would tune into hierarchies of power and fame within the microbial world um, and how they valued diversity in the microbial collections and how they thought about microbes as tools to intervene in an ecosystem of resources. And after the bursting of the economic bubble um, in 1989 or 1990, the private sector did gradually withdraw from funding this kind of biotechnology research. So now there's the question of how to reinvigorate it, who is going to take up the role to support it. Yeah, and that's a it's an interesting sort of open ended question, as there are so many open ended questions about, uh, you know, where uh, Japanese science and commerce are, are going. Um, so I thank you uh, for taking the time to uh, come join us today because it's a really nice place to well, it's not it's not wrapping up so much as you know like having an open ended uh, place to end with. Uh, but thanks for uh, making the time to to come uh, on the podcast. I know this was uh, not not easy for you because it's been a, a, a difficult and busy time uh, recently. We were talking about this off air, um, but I did want to ask before we go uh, what you are working on now. Now that the book is out. Uh, what is your current research? What are you interested in these days? I'm interested in pursuing that program of complementary science that I mentioned um, at the beginning of the podcast um, by looking at how fermentation science and its history can help us with present day problems of sustainability, um, especially in these three features that fermentation science um, displays, um, namely how um, it incorporates knowledge from small and medium scale industries and values traditional knowledge at craft practices um, in how it places a premium on biodiversity as much as standardization and in how it shows the emergence of 
features of ecosystem thinking that we might be able to draw on today as we think about what kind of new approaches do we need to microbes um, to address the problems that are emerging now. Well, that's great. So you're you're sort of, in a sense, transitioning from uh, a more historical perspective and, and trying to build on that to think about uh, where we're going. If I'm, if I'm yeah, it. to relate history to um, what we might learn from history to um, how, what kind of resources do we have to think about the future? Very cool. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to hearing more about that. Uh, and hopefully we will be able to have you back on uh, with a, a book about the, the future of fermentation and microbes uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, but again, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thanks. Thank you so much.